Every word of God is pure, and all scripture has been given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our instruction in righteousness. A portion that forms the basis for our meditation this day is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God on behalf of the Israelites is that they may be saved. Indeed, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but it is not consistent with knowledge, since they were ignorant of the righteousness from God and sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to the righteousness from God. For to everyone who believes, Christ is the end of the law, resulting in righteousness. Indeed, Moses writes this about the righteousness that comes by the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes by faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Certainly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And it is with the mouth that a person confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives generously to all who call on him. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So far, our text. In Christ Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, and the perfect Savior for sinners, grace and peace be unto you, dear fellow redeemed. In our recent study about Bible translations, we came across the predicament that Bible translators have when they try to translate certain portions of the scriptures. Do they take a word and make it sound, make it kind of redefine it or retranslate it into simple terminology? Or do they bring that word over and it's complicated and expect people to learn Bible terminology? We're faced with two of those words this morning. Two words are righteousness and justification. Two really big words that we wouldn't expect our little readers to know, but Bible terms that we need to teach one and all. Righteousness and justification are very much related. Righteousness is being right, just, we could say perfect in the sight of God. Justification is being right, just, perfect in the sight of God. They're exact, they're related to one another. And our text deals with that topic of righteousness today. The problem that we have is that we, who are sinners, are not righteous. So the question before us is, how can that sinner stand before a holy God? There are only two options available. One option is to try to do it by the law. The other option is to try to do it by the gospel. We pray that God's spirit will bless our study of the word he's recorded. Trying to be righteous by God, before God by the law. Verse 5 of our text. Indeed, Moses writes about, this, about the righteousness that comes by the law. The one who does these things will live by them. 
being just or perfect by God, if you can be without any sin of any kind, then you could stand before God, the scriptures say. If you could do all the law perfectly, well, let's take a brief look at the law and see how that would work out. If you want to look at the law of God, one place to start is with the Ten Commandments. So how are you on, the ten, on knowing the Ten Commandments? Do you know all ten? I remember talking to a young man who was taking Bible study with me, and we were talking about he thought he could work to be righteous before God, make up for the things he'd done wrong by keeping the Ten Commandments. So I asked him how many of the ten he knew. He said, well, Pastor, I, I couldn't do them in order, but I think I could probably get five of them. It just astounded me that someone who could only do maybe half of the Ten Commandments thought that he was keeping the Ten Commandments. Ignorance of the Ten Commandments is in itself a sin. Now pick a number between one and ten, and whatever that commandment, whatever number you've picked, and stop off at that commandment, and just take a moment to think about how you've been doing with that commandment in the past week. Remember that God's expectations aren't simply that you would avoid the negative, avoid doing this sinful thing, but his expectations are also that you would do the very positive thing. How well Martin Luther captured that in the commandments when he offered the explanation, we should fear and love God that we do this, that we do not do this, but that we do this. And then recall that God's expectations are not just what you're doing with your body, but he backs it up a little bit to not just what you're doing with your body, but also what are you saying with your mouth, and backs it up even further to what's going on in your heart. But that isn't exactly where we need to stop when we look at the law either. There's a Bible passage just in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, where God says, there are six things I hate, yes, seven. That kind of follows that poetry format that you find in the book of Proverbs. Six things, actually seven. So do you know the seven things that God lists there that he hates? Well, it kind of starts with the parts of the body. The first part that God stops off with is the eyes. I hate arrogant eyes. One translation is a proud look. Then it moves down to the tongue. I hate the tongue that lies. And then it moves to the hands. I hate the hands that are swift to shed blood. Another, then it moves to the heart. I hate the heart that plans evil things. And then finally it moves to the feet. I hate feet that are swift to run to destruction. Those are five of the seven things God hates. Now you go to the other, the last remaining two. The one that God says, I hate those who are the false witness who is breathing out lies. And finally he says, I hate someone who sows discord among the brothers, who, who disrupts the unity, the peace of the brotherhood. Seven things God hates. It doesn't make any difference if we're going to stop off at the Ten Commandments or the seven, thing God, seven things that God hates. We're going to find out that we are not righteous, rather we are unrighteous. But isn't there something that can be done? How about if we try really hard? Paul addresses that in verse 2 of our text. Indeed, I testify about the Israelites that they have a zeal for God, but is not consistent with knowledge. Paul says many of the Israelites have a great passion. They take their religion very seriously, perhaps more seriously than we take our religion. But he says the problem with their zeal, with their seriousness, is that they're off the track. It's without knowledge. And Paul was one who knew firsthand because he was very, very heartfelt about his religion. It wasn't a show for Paul. It was something that he took, put all his heart, all his body into. 
But the problem was, he did it without proper knowledge of the scriptures. And so he ended up exactly on the wrong side of God. So he ended up going and arresting Christians and persecuting Christians and blaspheming and denying the name of Jesus Christ as Savior. So it doesn't make any difference if you're really serious about the religion, if your religion is off the track. Well, how about if you kind of just make up your own rules? Verse 3 of our text. Since they're ignorant of the righteousness from God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness from God. How about if we make up our own Ten Commandments, our own seven things to hate, and now we can keep those? Well, that's just total nonsense. Human beings don't establish the right and wrong, but God does. God's established the right and wrong from the beginning of time, and that'll last till the end of time. That's the standard bearer. And it doesn't make any difference what our society does. It doesn't make any difference if all the world says, this is what's going to be right before God. It's only right if God says it is. Well, how about if I can't have a lot of zeal for my, if that doesn't help me, and if making up my own rules doesn't help me, what if I do something really stupendous, something really heroic? That's addressed in verse 6 and 7 of our text. Who will ascend into heaven, that is to say, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to say, to bring Christ up from the dead? What if we tried to make up for our unrighteousness with something really gigantic, really something really big, like going into heaven and getting Christ to come down, or going into the hell, into the abyss, into the grave, and bringing Christ back? Of course, that's just total nonsense. We can't even do that. No, the problem with if you want to do what Moses says, the one who does these things will live by them, is you have to do them exactly, 100%, perfectly. The law of God demands perfection, something that's impossible for us. From birth, we get started on the wrong path with, our, with the problem we have with sin, original sin, and it continues on into actual sins. We have an in, it's impossible for us to have the perfection that the law demands. But there is another option. The other option is the gospel. Verse 6 again of our text. That the righteousness that comes by faith speaks like this. Now this is the righteousness that comes by believing. Not by doing. Not by our doing, but believing in what someone else has done. The righteousness that comes by faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. The good news is, is that we don't have to think about going up into heaven or going down into the grave because Jesus has already done it. Jesus already came down from heaven without our even asking him. He came down and without our even asking him, he rose from the dead and conquered death. He did that so that we would have a different type of righteousness. His righteousness, his perfection came that comes to us by faith. God's not expecting some heroic deed. He says, verse 8, what does, the, what does the Bible say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. The word is near us. We don't have to make some pilgrimage to a far off city. We don't have to try to do some heroic deed. But it is in God's word that we receive that gift of righteousness from Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of our text. For to everyone who believes... Christ is the end of the law, resulting in righteousness. 
Pastor Schaller is accustomed to repeating something that's very significant, we need to repeat, Christ is the end of the law. In fact, it's so significant, we'll repeat it again. Christ is the end of the law. Remember that Ten Commandments we were talking about? Whatever number you stopped at? Remember the seven things that God hates? Take all of those things and put them aside. Christ is the end of that way of trying to do, be righteous because Christ results in righteousness. Again, verse 9 of our text. Certainly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Kind of amazing here. On our own, we would say, hey, maybe can I raise Christ from the dead? And God says, no, I've already done that. I've raised Christ from the dead. It's an accomplished fact. Again, verse, verse 10. For it is with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. It is with the mouth that a person confesses, resulting in salvation. Here we're reminded, it's not the doing, it's the believing. It's the believing in Jesus Christ. That verse that we had as our pre-service devotion, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, he knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might be given the righteousness which we could never earn or work or account for. Again, verse 11 and 12. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives generously to all who call on him. Here is God's plan. For the, in, for the unrighteous, a righteousness that comes from him. And it isn't just on certain people, it's on everyone. It's, that's, the, that's God's plan that was accomplished in Christ's death on Calvary, and God declared the whole world not guilty. When God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses to them. Again, verse 13. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the second time we've had that mentioned. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. A couple of points to be made with that closing phrase, will be saved. Saved, rescued, not some, from the helpless condition we were in at one time. We are rescued and saved and will be, will be saved. When you put your confidence in Jesus Christ, it is an accomplished fact that you will be saved. Not one of those things where you have to think, will I make it? Is it possible? Can I do it or not? But God's promises to you, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The only two options available for the sinner before the Holy God is by the law, which is an impossibility, or by the gospel, where we receive the perfect perfection. I suppose if I was back in Sim, my homiletics prof would ding me for using the phrase perfect perfection. But it's done on purpose. Because it's so astounding, the perfection that comes from Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect. You stand before God a saint. You stand before God righteous. You stand before God perfect because of Jesus Christ and his work. That news is oftentimes hard to believe. That's why we can need to continually go back to the scriptures. Our old Adam says, that's not possible. The Bible says, 
it's true. There's one more verse to our text. Verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God on behalf of the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul realizes, an Israelite himself, that many of the Israelites did not know this. And he has a heartfelt prayer for them. He doesn't become self-centered and say, well, I know where I'm going. Who cares about other people? But he has a very heartfelt desire for those who do not yet know the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the chapter before our chapter, he says, if it were possible, I would be willing to go to hell myself for eternity if all the Israelites could be saved. He has had such a passion, he's willing to give up heaven so others might have it. But it wasn't just a thought or wish that the Apostle Paul had. He put that desire, that heart's desire and prayer to God, he put that into action. He went out and spoke to as many people as possible. He went out and taught as, wherever he could. And no matter what the risk to him, perhaps it might be a, a potential stoning. Perhaps it might be an imprisonment. He continued preaching about the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Can we do any less? Can we who now know heaven is our home? Can we who know that I'm calling on the name of Jesus and I will be saved? Can we keep that to ourselves? Don't we also have to be concerned about our fellow citizens living here in Eau Claire or in Wisconsin or in the United States of America or our fellow human beings around the world? We have to have the same heartfelt desire and prayer to God that all of them might be saved. And if that's our desire and our prayer, then we'll also put that into action by seeking every opportunity we can to tell others the righteousness that you have by the law is an impossibility, and you'll end up in hell. But let me tell you about another righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Savior of the world. A few months ago, when Pastor Nauman took the call to take this message overseas to Tanzania, I stepped into the catechism class here at Messiah to finish off the school year for him, and I was taking the seventh and eighth graders in catechism, and there was a little bit of an adjustment there as a different pastor came in. And one of the questions they had was, how do you do your grading, pastor? And I explained to them, well, it's either an H or an H. And it puzzled some of them for a while. And I said, by the way, you won't get your grade this week, and you won't get your grade this the end of this month, and you won't get your grade at the end of the school year. You'll get your grade at the end of your, when you leave the world. H or H, heaven or hell. My prayer for you, I said to each of them, is that you would find, I would find you someday with me in heaven. But that, for that to be, they have to remember the Bible truth. Righteousness by the law is going to lead you to hell. Righteousness by the gospel will lead you to heaven. It cannot be otherwise. Let me take a moment here, too. I was told that during the uh, blessings of the confirmands, I had uh, mentioned Savannah Ray Quaid, and her name is Savannah, so I apologize to the family for getting it wrong. I would ask her to come forward again, but that would be more embarrassing than the first time when I embarrassed her. So uh, just for the congregation knows, it is Savannah Ray Quaid. So the prayer I have for my catechism students is that they would, by the gospel, join me in heaven. The prayer that we would have 
for all of the members of our congregation by the gospel and righteousness of Christ that you would be in heaven. And the prayer that we have for our fellow human beings is that they may be saved by knowing Jesus Christ. We close with, our, with a prayer from our hymn. My soul, no more attempt to draw thy life and comfort from the law. Fly to the hope the gospel gives. The man that trusts the promise lives. Amen.